right, we're live. Hi, everybody. My name is Luke Thomas. I'm the host of the Luke Thomas Show on Sirius XM, as well as the uh, one half of the host of Morning Combat. This is my daughter, Violetta. Stand up. Stand up. Say hi. You want to say hi to the people? <laughs> you want to say hi? Say hi. Say, say I'm the baby. Say, I'm the baby. <laughs> You're the baby? You're the baby? Anyway, we'll talk today about Till versus Whitaker. We'll talk about, uh, what else are we going to talk about today? Dada. Yep, we'll talk about Dada. That's me. Mm-hmm. Probably. And that's it. Dada. Yeah, can I have a beso? Dada. Beso. Give me a beso. Come here. Give me a kiss. Beso. I do it. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Beso. I don't get a kiss? Nothing? Beso. Ah, not today. She's still being pretty sweet. All right, without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? All right, we are back. Thank you so much. Out, out. Take, take the bear with you. Yeah. Sorry, I got a million people in my bar. There you go. Okay. Sorry about that. We are back. Hi, everyone. Um, let's do this. Put this up here. Give the video a thumbs up. Subscribe to the channel. As you guys know, I put up a thread on Thursdays. Uh, and uh, I answer your questions on Fridays. So there you go. All right. Um, so without further ado, let's get this going. We can talk about Till Whitaker. We can talk about Bellator tonight. We can talk about... Whatever you guys want. So up to you. It is your chat in as much as it is mine. Certainly you are under zero obligation to contribute anything. But if you do financially, I will answer your question directly at the end. Okay? All right. All right. Uh, let's do it. My kid's cute, huh? She's a cutie. Misiella. Um, Cielo. All right. Let's do this. Community. And we'll put this off. Okay. Let's go. A bunch of questions, not as many likes as I would have liked to have seen, but it's kind of a down week. I feel like people are a little bit like MMA'd out on this one, which I understand. Believe me, I feel the same way. So, uh, Hey, Luke, why do you think the women's strawweight division is more popular than the men's flyweight? That's an interesting question. Um, why do I think women's strawweight is more popular than men's flyweight? Well, I think a couple of reasons. Um, you're sort of looking at it like absolute weight, right? Where it's like, well, men's flyweight is heavier than women's straw weight. And so if the issue at men's flyweight is that they're smaller or at least too small for a lot of people's appetites, then surely women being 115 must be even less than that and therefore um, not suitable. But I don't think that's the right way to look at it. The right way to look at it is to say, if you're watching women fight, where does the best of it occur? 115. Maybe not permanently, but certainly right now. Right? You get knockouts down there, big personalities, tons of talent in that division, tons of parity, different kinds of skills. It's international. Like There's just everything you like about a division it's got. Flyweight has been drained. So partly it's just it's not that good of a division no matter what. The other part is um, relative to other men's divisions, it's not nearly as strong. So like if you're just asking not so much about aggregate weight, 
But if you're asking, okay, I like I like parity in a division. I like it when they can do knockouts. I like it when they can do submissions. I like when they're well rounded. I like it when they have rivals. I like it when um, you know, sort of all the, the the features you would list as what like what you want out of a division, right? It checks off most of those boxes. Men's flyweight doesn't. Again, some of that will vary de depending on subjective interpretation, but. I think most people would say the things that make women's straw weight interesting or the things that make just about any division interesting, which is to say things that flyweight in certain respects lacks. I think that's the answer. Um, who would you book TJ Dillashaw against for his first fight back? And how many wins until he receives a title shot? It's a good question. So let's take a look at the rankings, shall we? And let's take a look at the rankings. I'd probably book him against someone in the top 10. So that would mean Rob Font and up. Yeah, I don't think I would give him a fight against Garbrandt or Sandhagen or even Munoz. Maybe Aldo, depending if he sticks around or what happens. Asuncao sitting at 7, Rivera at 8, Stamen at 9, Font at 10. Somewhere in there. Because Dodson, Yadong, and O'Malley, and Marab Davalashvili, I don't know that those are all that exciting. In the top 10, it's still pretty ex I mean, they might be exciting. I'm not here to say that they wouldn't be, but for my money, they are. O'Malley, by the time he gets there, I think will be deep inside that top 10, so that might be one, although I, even that I wouldn't necessarily do. Somebody who is tough, who's well-known to insiders, who's inside that top 10, but is still something of a let's see where this guy is at kind of scenario, to me, is where you would want to put him. And then you make an adjustment from there. Maybe they're, he's just as good, right? And you, he'll fly up the rankings, or he has fallen off a cliff, and he'll drop, or he's sort of around that level, and then you could just continue to match make in that range. It, it would that, that, to me, is where you want to put it. So um, up the stakes to an interesting degree. Not too high, where he's taking the place of people who might be more deserving, but not too low to where it's... You know, it seems like, A, not even necessarily the best calibration of where you're trying to assess his ability. And also, like, not exactly the most interesting fights you could put him in. <coughs> Got that Rona. All right, yes or no? You are confident over 50% of current champions have taken PEDs during their run to the belt. Well, you don't specify UFC champions. So if we're just talking like in any organization anywhere, maybe. If we're talking just UFC, probably not. But even, even in a world where you can dope liberally, 50% would be fairly high. Um, you know, there are a number of different studies that have tried to measure use. And, you know, it's a very, very hard thing to measure because you are asking people who have broken rules and norms to admit to something that they probably don't want to admit to. And so you don't really get an accurate number but I would tell you that anything 30% or higher is pretty high, right? That's when you start getting into some trouble territory. So 50 would be very high. Um, not the highest I've seen, but high. And so I doubt you get that with UFC. But that would, I mean, this is a huge number, 50%. 50% I mean, that's a lot. Um, and you said, know, taking the run to, uh, on the run to the belt. Like, have they taken it at any point in their career? Or that might get a little bit different, right? So, you know, uh, but if you'd asked me that question like 10 years ago, I'd probably say 50. Eh, no, even then, I'm not sure I would do that, actually. There'd be fewer champions, so it's a little bit harder to say. Let me think about that. So in 2010, 
with 50%. Maybe because there's fewer divisions, but not necessarily. I still think it probably hovers somewhere around 30%-ish or less, kind of, you know, something like that. Who is a fighter who has never had a tenure in the UFC that you would want to see in the promotion? I feel like the obvious choice is Douglas Lima. That's a big one. But personally, I think Gary Tonin would be an awesome addition at 145. I do too, but he seems very careful about managing his career, which I think he should. I know he's doing some, uh, I know he's doing some, uh, what you call it? Um, he's doing sport jujitsu, I think this weekend or the next, something coming up pretty soon. So he's sort of staying busy that way while I guess he can't get over to one or whatever the situation is. Um, I would want to see him too, but let's be careful with like rushing him. Uh, I want to see what happens with Dylan Danis. I want to see how good he can get. Um, Patricio Frede, best Bellator fighter ever, would be kind of interesting. Um, who's another one that's out there that'd be kind of cool? I have my finger on the pulse less about that. This is not as big as a concern as it used to be. It used to be a while ago, you know, a little more than 10 or so years ago, this was a really relevant question because it, the, the MMA world was a lot more fractured and balkanized. It's less so that, I mean, it's still quite uh, dispersed, but not nearly as much. Um, is there anybody out of one that is interesting? They certainly have a lot of kickboxers who do quite well. I don't know how many of them would do well in MMA. Um, you know, they've got some interesting female fighters over in one you could probably bring over. Um, I'm kind of blanking here a little bit. I'm trying to think about, you know, people you've never seen. That's probably the ones I would, maybe Michael Chandler to a degree, right? Something like that. Mike Tyson versus Roy Jones and Nate Robinson versus Jake Paul. Fucking kill me. What is happening? Is this really the best boxing can do at the moment? No. With all the stars sitting out with no gates. Well, obviously I'm biased, so take this for what it is worth. But I do think that if you talk to any other boxing not that I'm some incredible insider, but I at least pay part of my bills with, with boxing coverage, although predominantly MMA, but I work for Showtime, right? I do think what Showtime is putting together for the rest of the year is a little bit more than, than you know, the run-of-the-mill direct you're getting on top rank. And I know they got some better fights coming, too. they got Teofimo Lopez coming up, maybe against Lomachenko. We'll see how that goes. So that's a huge fight, right? And we'll see what happens with Wilder Fury 3. So I'm not here to say that, you know, I'm not. I'm glad top rank is back. I realize that they are dealing with some structural disadvantages, but I'm not mad at top rank. Like they're doing, they're doing what everyone is doing, like kind of the best they can given the circumstances, right? Um, but it's not that great right now. And partly the reason why it's not that great is because, you, as you indicated, you know, the guys are wanting parts of the gate, and Bud Crawford is like, I'm out until then. Even when they book some decent fights, they lose a bunch of them to COVID tests at the last minute that get positive. It's a lot of problems that they're dealing with. But I would argue that Showtime with that um, Leo Santa Cruz and Gervonta Davis fight in October 24th, and then the Charlo Twins pay-per-view, the doubleheader, in the 26th of September. These are legitimately good cards, especially that Charlo Twins one where you're going to get like six fights for the price of one pay-per-view and... Both Charlo fights are against like legitimate contenders and Derevyanchenko and uh, Jason Rosario. Like those are real fights, and then the card underneath is pretty good as well. So it's to say that it's the best boxing can do is not quite true. Virgil, um, what's his face out of Golden Boy? I forget his last name. 
the up-and-coming guy. He sort of is interesting to pay attention to. Canelo might be coming back in September or so against Callum Smith. Um, uh, the Zones, sort of uh, Eddie Hearn's backyard series, whatever they're calling that, is going to get going here before too long. So boxing is getting going again. Um, you know, is it, the, is it as good as what the UFC has been doing? Certainly that is very debatable. Uh, have they been as consistent as what UFC has done? Not even close, you know? Fair point, but it's also not fair to say that the best the boxing can do is this. This is probably a function of the pandemic making people nostalgic or whatever, but it's just not accurate to say this is the best representation currently that we have. So with that out of the way, what do I make of it? I don't know. I put a video up yesterday. I don't know what to make of it because I was completely wrong about the Floyd Mayweather intention Nascawa exhibition i was like oh floyd is scamming everybody he's scamming you dullards it's gonna be so terrible and then he goes in there and beats the fuck out of him and i was like oops didn't see that one coming so i was completely wrong so i'm trying to come into this with an open mind but this is also a little bit different floyd is was younger he was in his 40s when he did that nascal was what in his 20s still floyd was also the bigger man you know this is a 54 year old versus a 51 year old i had roy jones on my show today He's, you know, he answered all the questions you can answer, which is, it's the same thing with Chuck and Tito, man. You come down to the same question of, what does it mean to have government sanctioning? Because you can't tell the guy to stop if it's regulated by the government and the California Commission might be the best in the country. And they're giving these guys licenses, not pro licenses, just to do the exhibition, but still. Um... I know that Andy Foster is trying to do the best that he can. These are difficult questions to answer. And I know he doesn't want a repeat of that Ortiz and Liddell 3 fiasco. I am certain he does not want to do that again. So they're trying to make it an exhibition and say, like, don't go for, you know, uh, the kill, so to speak. But Roy was on my show today. He was a little hard to understand, but that, I couldn't tell if that was exactly from him being on the cell phone or not. Take that for what it's worth. The other part, I was like, you know, you guys told Andy Foster, according to Andy Foster, that you weren't going to go out there and kill each other. That was part of it. You're going to move around. Well, which is it, man? Are you going to move around to the point where now it's safe but boring? Or are you going to do a whole lot more than that, which is, okay, now it's exciting to a degree. I mean, as, mu in as much as guys who used to be legendary boxers can be in their 50s, which is maybe somewhat. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not being a complete hater. I get that there's an entertainment value to that. But then if somebody does get knocked out, you got a dude in their 50s getting knocked out. Like, that's great. Like, that's not great, you know? So I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's a way to go in between where they can kind of slug it out a little bit and it's fun and it's cool and it's not that expensive. And I know there's going to be some charity donations here that are going to happen. And all of this hand-wringing is for nothing. So because I was so spectacularly off the mark with Mayweather and Naskawa, I'm going to sit here and try to have an open mind about this. I, I, I have some reservations, and I'd be lying if I didn't. Um, but maybe it's not worth crying, you know, about the end of the world. Okay, well, let's just kind of see. As it relates to Nate Robinson and Jake Paul, I don't know why I'm supposed to give a flying fuck about this. I, here, Look, here's the thing, man. If y'all want to pay for this, pay for it. If you don't want to pay for it, don't. If you think that this is bad for boxing... It's probably not true, right? Because on that same night, you're going to have Canelo and Callum Smith. And I think um, there's something else in the boxing world happening that day. You know, this idea that, like, there's no boxing going on and it's just this sort of weird, at a bare minimum, I think we can all agree, a little bit weird and unusual. 
matchmaking is is is, is quite literally not true. And and uh, Showtime gets going with its cards in August. Um, fine. Like what you like and hate what you hate, but please, I said this on Morning Combat today, and we did an extra episode of it. For the love of Jesus Christ, for the love of Jesus Christ, will you please not get out there and say that this is good for boxing? I'm not here to argue that it's bad. It's got nothing to do with boxing. Oh, we're bringing in a younger audience. We're bringing in that YouTube audience. Shut the fuck up. Look at top ranks numbers. You ain't bringing in shit. What a load of trash. DAZN is in trouble. Top ranks numbers are exactly what they would be were it not for the Pauls getting into boxing. It's a way for our perverse economy to reward people who, oh, fucking Jake worked hard for this. Great. That's the bare minimum. I can work hard to, you know, for an MMA fight. Doesn't mean anyone's, you know, oh, people pay to watch it for blah, blah, blah reason. Doesn't mean I'm any fucking good. Right? It doesn't mean that I'm helping MMA or what you know whatever the fuck. It's such a ridiculous argument. It's so not true. It's designed to sell you on something and make you say it's okay when obviously it's stupid. It's quite obviously stupid. Can we just admit that? Plenty of things that I like are stupid. It's not liking stupid things is not the end of the world. We all like dumb shit, okay? We all in our own way have guilty pleasures, movies that are terrible that we like. You know, songs we can't admit to liking until we're by ourselves and we're like, oh, that's kind of a cool jam. It all it happens to all of us, okay? But what I don't go out there and say is that, you know, fucking uh, Barbie World, or whatever, I don't like that song per se, but, you know, whatever. Let's say, that, let's say that I loved I'm Living in a Barbie World song. Am I going to sit here and say it's good for music that it goes around? Nah, it's probably not bad for music either, you know, in the, it's a wash or whatever. But... It's not like some benefit. Oh, it's pulling in a fucking different audience. Shut the fuck up. It's not doing any of those things. It's just pulling in his audience momentarily because they'll watch him cosplay as anything because he's actually not good at anything other than, it appears, audience generation. Apparently in this world, you can generate audiences and that's actually your only skill because he's not some like incredible video editor. He's not some incredible boxer. He's not some incredible hip-hop artist. Like, what is his skill other than audience generation? His ability to be the, you know, the subject of teen voyeurism? Uh, that's, that's, that's more a sacrifice and less a skill. Okay? A highly, co highly commoditized one, but nevertheless. Anyway, so watch what you want to watch. It's not bad for boxing, but just like it's not bad for boxing, it ain't good for it either. You can leave that shit to somebody else to fucking promote. What a, what a load of crap. All right, Combate or Combache. I'm not sure which one that it would be. I don't know. Oh, it's Brazilian, so Combache. Has a lot of shoulder programming, some of it quite good. They have a series called Born to Fight that shows the background of several Brazilian fighters, like where they're from, their hardships, uh, etc. In a country like Brazil, these stories show salt-of-the-earth people overcoming social problems. Do you think this would be something that the U.S.-based fans would be interested in and watch, especially considering it has uh, subtitles? Would it help promote Brazilian fighters? Well, there's a lot of Americans who don't like reading subtitles, to be clear. And uh, no, probably not. I don't know that it would make some major difference. Uh, like, hey, here's an interesting person from a faraway land doing an activity that very few people actually enjoy. 
No, I don't. I don't suspect it would make a difference. I mean, if they're told in an incredibly compelling way, maybe. But you know, Americans want to learn about other Americans, which is not a bad thing. Uh, Brazilians want to learn about other Brazilians, and you know, to the extent that somebody is an international sensation, then they want to learn about them. But just you know, like Brazilian fighters who compete in MMA. I mean, if, you know, just go to a casual sports fan and ask them to what extent. Oh, and by the way, it's not in English. It's like, how many hurdles do you want to create? <laughs> for somebody before they just check out completely. And this one has enough. Doesn't mean it's not a good program. It's not what I'm saying, but you know. Uh, if Woodley loses to Covington, should he retire? Or maybe go up to middleweight, which he has talked about earlier. Personally, I think that he would have his hands full against middleweights. You know what? Well, it depends how he, if, 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 you know, it, let's see how he looks. If he looks like he's looked in uh, the last two fights, and then he did not have a strong... Sh you guys see them on the Titan games? That was not a strong showing. Um, it did not go well. Now, why did it not go well? I don't know. Um, lot, f fair number of reasons. Partly, they kind of undersold the dude he was going up against there. They were like, oh, this dude is, uh, is a school teacher. And it's like, okay, but like... You know, did he used to be an athlete of some kind? Did he train specifically to get ready for the Titan Games, or was Tyron just like maybe coasted? I don't know. E either way, um, it's not been a a great win streak since the loss to Usman. I'll put it that way. So, how would, should he retire if he loses? I would say yes. Now, understand that I don't know what he wants to do with his career, or maybe he could go to Bellator and make a bunch of money, or you know, there's a lot of different ways in which I'm mapping, or I should say demanding of him things he has no obligation to adhere to or listen or pay attention to in any capacity whatsoever. But it's like, if what you care about is doing this at a high level and you lose to Usman, okay. Then you lose to Burns, okay. And then you lose to Colby. It's not to say you couldn't fight inside the top 10, but at that point, affirmative. I mean, I think even now it's pretty obvious at 38 years old, 39 in April. Um, days as a champion are probably for sure over. Right, and so like, what would you be doing it for, to still compete and see how long you could do it? That's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, but then you sort of a risk assessment there about like what kind of damage you're taking and what kind of quality of life you want to have after fighting. So, um, to me, that would be like if to go out there and lose to Colby would be bad. But by the way, I would I would pick Colby to win at this point, and I without much hesitation. Uh, okay, how do you feel about commentators discussing who was winning during the fight? I'd imagine the judges can hear everything with no crowd and could influence scorecards. Should changes be made moving forward? That's interesting, right? Because before I wouldn't have worried about that when there was the crowd, but we know that the fighters can hear them, which means the judges can probably hear them too. Um, yeah, but how much of a difference could it actually be making? It's probably a reasonable concern. Um, I don't know how you solve that unless you have the commentators not ringside. There might just be no way to fix that. Because if the whole idea is for the judge to sit there at the ringside so they can see and hear and feel everything right up on that cage, then, yeah, I mean, maybe you want to distance them from the commentators as much as possible. I don't think that's, I don't think that's an unreasonable concern, but it may just be an occupational hazard because either they're going to be within earshot if they're in the room and you want them in the room, or they're not going to be, oh, they can cover their ears, but then you kind of take away some of the value of what it means to be sitting there cage side. So I would say, look, whoever is doing this should probably put the commentary booth in such a place that 
they are as far away from the judges as possible. Maybe you could even add some plexiglass around them to or whatever some some kind of some kind of contraption where they can still see without much obstruction and it can muffle sound a little bit. Maybe even that would be fine. Um, that, or that, that may not be doable. I'm, I'm assuming that, that like there's some kind of workable solution in that way. But otherwise, no. Like, leave as is. Make an argument for how both Till and Whitaker could win on Saturday. And which one do you believe to be the most likely outcome? All right, let me think about that for a second. For Till. Let's say Till is negotiating distance really well. Working really well behind his jab. Right? Pushing... Whitaker back, maybe even Whitaker willing to give ground because he might be trying to steer Till into his punches or into some kind of directional path. But Till is very, very careful using push kicks, right? Calf kicks, jab. So these, these weapons at long and medium range where he is getting off first, he is measuring, he is keeping uh, Whitaker away. He is not getting taken down from it because he's, you know, he's quick and he's snappy with it. And then when Whitaker tries to blitz, he gets out of the way. And Whitaker maybe has taken too much punishment, right? Uh, you know, to, in the Romero fights and then that loss to Adesanya, where eventually behind the jab, Till finds a timing on that one-two and sits him down and then finishes him off. That doesn't seem to me unreasonable. Likely, I don't know, unreasonable, no. Whitaker's the opposite. It's like for the same reasons that Till lost to Masvidal be the same reasons that he loses to him. Now, Masvidal's a very different striker, but that sort of like Scooby-Doo, Fred Flintstone, Fred Flintstone switch step and then blitz behind it where you don't know what punch is coming and then it ends up being like a left hook over the top in that case. I mean, that kind of blitzing is exactly what Robert Whitaker can do. Till might give way too much space, right? And uh, Till is a step and slider, not a bouncer. Now, so was Adesanya, but he's an incredible counterpuncher. And so what might end up happening with Till is that, you know, it's the same thing with Max Holloway against Volkanovski in the second one. You might think Max won, but still, there was a trade-off he was making, right? We talked about it on Dissected, where in his other fights, he was kind of crouched low to have mobility against, and his feet were further apart, against Volkanovski the second time. Feet were close together, posture was upright, and the trade-off there was he has more weapons, but he has less mobility. If you can get around those weapons... Uh, and Whitaker can against Till, faking, fainting, you know, blitzing, switching up the timing, disrupting the rhythm. He can find his way in there, uh, in there again. This time he has five rounds. He can be more patient than he was against Adesanya, where he was kind of forcing it over and over again. So uh, I tend to think that the Whitaker one is a little bit more likely, but it's a very competitive fight. Hey, Luke, heavier DC won by KO, lighter DC lost by TKO. How should he show up for the trilogy? I think... Um, kind of like the lighter one better. So he can go the distance and show the agility that he needs to. Um, neither of those is exactly an answer for the body punches he was taking. That's not quite the, the solution. So maybe it, weight is less the issue there and... Uh, something else is better about that, but I tend to think that, you know, not necessarily replicating light heavyweight DC is exactly what you want. You still want some heft on you, but um, the kind where you can still be fleet of foot, plenty of energy, no, the weight is a is a buoy, not an anchor. Uh, I tend to think that's probably your best place.
How does Yuri Prohazka? I cannot say this fucking guy's name. Who does he fight next? Smith makes sense, but we'd love to see him versus Walker. Well, he beat Uzdemir. Uzdemir's top ranked. I would say... Whew. Look at those rankings again. That's a good question. Maybe... So they've got Yuri at eight. Smith's a good one. Rakic is a good one. Uh, Corey or Glover. Those are all good options. I'm not one of these guys that has like a hard on for any particular form of matchmaking. I don't, you know, I don't, um, I like, there are certain fights with certain guys at, at portions of their career where you really want to see them fight one other guy. For example, Adesanya versus Costa. But a lot of fans spend a lot of time like fantasy matchmaking. I think I've been pretty direct about this. It's not something I do a lot. Uh, again, there are Individual cases, for example, Sterling is quite obviously your number one contender at Bantamweight. He deserves that title shot. That is a fight that I really want to see. Costa versus Adesanya. Costa's not really your number one contender, but these two guys are from different parts of the world, different body types, different striking styles, different attitudes, um, totally organic rivalry. I mean, it's a fight you just really want to see, you know? But beyond that, I don't get too hung up on which fights get made. I tend to think that, like, there's a degree of latitude for the most part in a fighter's career about who they can be fighting. Like, for example, I love the Derek Brunson and Edmund Shabazian fight. Now, does he have to be fighting for if you're a Shabazian fan, which I think I'm a huge fan of his game, and he's Armenian, and you guys know that, you know, I cheer for Armenians to a degree. Uh, does he have to be fighting Derek Brunson for this fight? Like, if he was fighting somebody else, you know, in a relatively similarly ranked position, we wouldn't have the same kind of anticipation about it. I mean, I tend to think that that's oversold. So uh, for Yuri, any of those names I mentioned would be great. I would love to see any of those. Um, Walker would be fun too, although Walker's a little bit further away at this point. But uh, yeah, any of those. Smith's a great one. It's a great one. Whilst I'm not at all suggesting he will actually do this, I think a cool option for Max Holloway, if he is now in the Jose Aldo featherweight limbo position of being better than everybody else except the champ, would be to take some time and try to make some money fights for himself. For example, I have always loved the idea of him versus Nate Diaz at lightweight, just for the pleasure of seeing some weird wild shit. UFC could make loads of cool matchups for him and the fans. He would already have guys around his weight classes like Nate, Ferguson, Ortega, rematch, maybe McGregor rematch. He's already achieved so much, but maybe it's time to really cash in if possible. To the extent you could get the compliance there, sure. The Ortega one, maybe he wants that back. Hard to say exactly. He's been gone so long. Ferguson, I doubt, would see a fight with Max as like a buoy back to a title opportunity. Nate Nate wants to be the B-side to a really famous A-side, which that would not solve that problem. Um, and then McGregor, does he really want to fight Max again after Max has lost twice? No. I don't. I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but that... I would bet no. I would bet no. So, like, in theory, I know what you're getting at. Would I want to see Nate versus Max? That'd be awesome. Uh, Max versus Tony Ferguson? Two thumbs up. Max versus Ortega? I'd love to see another crack at him. The first one didn't go Ortega's way, but who's to say? And then a fight with McGregor? Yeah, I mean, of course. Who wouldn't want to see that? That'd be amazing. But you have to ask what the incentive structure is in place for all of those other guys to take it. And there might be a couple in there they could make. But I would be very cautious about being enthusiastic as uh, about this being a viable path. My understanding is, um, I think his team want to see if the UFC will give him a third crack at Volkanovski. 
And if not, I don't know what they're going to do. But I think that they're waiting to hear about that. Uh, could you give a checklist of what you are looking for in a president? <laughs> Fuck. Uh, not much that these two jabronis that are running for it have. I can tell you that. Fuck. Um, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I... Uh, I don't look at that person as some kind of hope and, you know, I'm not electing some fucking deity or, or I, I don't look at president like that. I, okay. So what would I like? I would like somebody who is a, um, I'd prefer military experience, but not required. That's generally true for any kind of federal or state elected office. Local, I don't think it matters. Um, that's one. I would look for somebody who has preferably held a cabinet level position, but again, not requirement. I would look for somebody who uh, sort of like pragmatic. I, I you, you know, the, you, some of you might hate this, but I like people who are a little bit technocratic, or at least if they're not technocratic, they can surround themselves with enough technocratic people who have really policy oriented thinking. I, I am less about individual presidents. I don't. I don't think I've come across anyone in my lifetime that I've been like, you know, that's not what I care about. What I care about is uh, the individual policy positions on housing, on immigration, on taxes, on you name it, like the rest of you. And to any extent which there is overlap enough in one degree or the other, it's sort of what I'm looking for. But, you know, they all are just deeply inadequate in every way. Um, so it's really not just about that. It's about who you elect at the federal and state level. Uh, it's a, it's about who, you know, um, uh, obviously any other branches of government and, and from the judiciary. But I think one thing that I would really like to see for the next president, if at all possible, is um, I would like to see the State Department reconstituted. I think that's been a big misstep. And I would like to see, I would like to see, God, there's a million things I'd like to see, I suppose. Um, governance is a skill. Right, capable governance, uh, which is not merely the understanding and implementation of policy, but uh, recruiting the various factions in government to, you know, to co convince and persuade, and then get behind these like uh, good ideas. I'm about good ideas more than, I, and, you, and I'm sure some of you will hate my ideas. It's fine, but I think the general, the general way in which I look at governing is. Uh, what are the policy prescriptions that they offer and what do those policy prescriptions say about their worldview? And I need somebody who is, who's got a really hands-on understanding of the levers of government and how they work. Not to get the government, uh, uh, you know, all up in your lives, but like who can, who can, look, there are, there are effective and ineffective forms of governance. I would like people who are effective at it. All right. Um, how would many, how many double vodka Red Bulls would it take uh, Luke Thomas to go third world on uh, Helwani? Love the interview with Till on your radio show. Well, you know, I've had a lot of Red Bull vodka Red Bulls, but I'm not gonna, you know, get into any kind of crazy scenario. But I used to do the old vodka Red Bull thing. If you guys didn't miss it, I had Darren Till on my show, and I asked him what his drink of choice was, and he said a vodka Red Bull, and I was like, oof. I was like, boy, I bet you're getting into trouble with that. He goes, uh, yes. <laughs> I, yes, lots of trouble. 
I was like, dude, vodka Red Bull, man. That's when, you know, and I listen, I'm not judging. I've done all that. I've, you know, I'm going to get brain damaged drunk tonight. You know, I'm not even like saying, uh, you know, I've moved past it, but I don't like the, the, the vodka Red Bull thing. That is when you are looking for entertainment in the form of trouble on your night out, man. Uh, you know, I've never seen someone who drank a bunch of those and was like, yeah, let's just go home and watch the Hallmark Channel and we can, you know, eat a bowl of ice cream and talk about boys or some shit. You know, it's like, if you have, and all my drinks are doubles. If you have a double vodka Red Bull, yo, you, you might have some bloody knuckles by the end of the night. Or, you know, gonna get chucked out of bars or, you know, thrown up in a cab or fucking steal someone's dog or whatever. I mean, it's going to end in a bizarre direction. People, people are always like, oh, brown liquor does that to me. It ain't the color of liquor, bro. It's what it's the amount of liquor and then the, all the other stimulants you put in your body to counteract its sedative effects. And if you're just housing Red Bulls, whoo, buddy. Uh, get the, you know, open up a spot for me in the county drunk tank, Sheriff, because... Daddy's coming home. Is there a possibility that Gustafson will be slow and unfit at, at heavyweight? Just like Rockhold was when he was out at light heavyweight. Could be. Could be. Um, he looked, what was he, 240 today? So we looked this up. At 240, like the high 240s, JDS is a consistent like footwork jab guy over the long haul, right? Which is what I'm not saying that JDS and Gustafson are the exact same games, but somebody who can move and stick the jab, right? And just sort of be good for good for 25 minutes if they need to be. Uh, he could do that at that weight, but 240 pounds, that's a lot of weight with that kind of fight style. It's a lot of weight. So I don't know. I don't know how he's going to look, man, because Rockhold was, you know, at what made him great at middleweight was how fleet of foot he was. He, he was so good at just leaning and getting out of the way, and he was quick and agile. And then he looked so slow against Blahovich. Um, which, by the way, that win that Gustafson has over Blahovich has aged pretty well. It's aged pretty well. We'll see. I mean, Verdum looks so far past it at this point that maybe even if he is slow, it won't. Uh, Gustafson, even if he is slow, it won't matter. But, you know. I, I, I had Jimmy Smith on. He made a good point. It's not like he got on the scale and you were like, wow, look how good he looks at heavyweight. And he was never Mr. Olympia at 205, but I'm still willing to entertain the idea he can be good. I just didn't I – I thought he was going to come in at like high 220s, low 230s at most, like a 227-ish kind of area. It would be 240, like – it's a lot, you know. Uh, are the rumors true? You and Brendan Schaub no longer talk. Well, this is why you shouldn't listen to rumors. No, that's fucking ridiculous. Uh, I had people hit me up being like, hey, how come you're not doing those, uh, you know, coast-to-coast -coast shows with B. Schaub and, and Kenny's there? Well, first of all, Kenny and Schaub are a great combo, number one. Number two, it's just hard to do it like, you know, uh, uh, it's just... I, Listen, Skype is better than rate, than uh, phone calls, and in-person is better than Skype. And so sometimes, 
I think we do it over Skype. I'm not sure exactly what software we use. Whatever. It's not that there's no value to it. We'll do one of these again. But Kenny is great. He lives in California, like in L.A., uh, and they can do it in person. You're going to get a better show with somebody in person than with, probably with me just long range. I don't think it's as good. It's just, just the, the conversation is stilted. You can't feed off of each other's energy. Shab has like a big old thing of coffee before that, so he's amped and he's rocking and he's rolling and me too. And you lose that. You lose that if it's not live and they get to have that together. I, I got nothing other than keep doing it Kenny and, and Brendan like it's not <laughs> it's so not a thing what we disagreed on coronavirus so now we can't be friends like we can't talk I, I don't know if this is just some rando person asking it or if there are people speculating but let me assure you it is complete nonsense I will get out to California hopefully at some point this year we'll do another one I'm sure we'll do a coast to coast at some point Showtime has plenty of work for me coming up let me assure you you know, we are all well taken care of here. Like, it's okay. Shab is great. Um, you know, and and I think that this whole process has been something of a learning experience. And what do I want? I want to sabotage his shows by making him talk to me over Skype versus having a former UFC fighter and commentator and analyst in the actual facility. It'd be selfish to do that. And I just won't do that. And I'm not going to ever demand it. It'd be ridiculous. So... So no, we good. All right, in the uh, mid to long term, do you think it's actually a, a what? This person wrote, it, it is actually a business miss opportunity, but they wrote miss opportunity like uh, Miss America, like uh, M-I-S-S space opportunity. <laughs> it's like, what award did you win in high school? I was named Miss Opportunity by my classmates. Um, I think you mean missed opportunity. You got to conjugate that. In the mid to long term, do you think it's actually a business missed opportunity for UFC to not create a new division such as 165, 175, and so forth? With increasing pressure for producing more content, it will be more helpful while creating better, exciting competition. In boxing, the multiple promotions are confusing, not the number of weight classes. Well, that's not totally true. You know, what's the difference between super featherweight and lightweight? I mean, how many, how many, some of you will know, but a lot of you will be like, mm, don't think I know. Yes, that is altogether compounded as a problem when you've got IBO, IBF, WBC, WBA, and everything else in between. And then there's continental champions and then blah, blah, blah. Okay. So yes, that's a combination of problems there. Um, you know, you talk to boxing fans and they'll tell you, the ones who watch MMA, and they'll be like, I like how it's simpler. Like they really prefer it. Fair enough, but I've been very clear about this. I don't need 125 in UFC, and I know that's supposed to be sacrilegious. Everybody likes to pretend that they're the MMA hipster and be like, dude, what happened to, to flyweight is a travesty? And I was not a fan necessarily of what happened to flyweight. I didn't need for that to happen to flyweight, but I got to be honest, if they came to you and they were like, okay, we got to get rid of one division, you know, among the men, what would you say? It's flyweight every day. Like, it's no other choice. It would be the, and this is before it was drained. It's like flyweight immediately. How, how you're gonna get rid of bantamweight or featherweight or light or welter or mid uh, or light heavy or heavy? So what, what an easy question to answer. And to me, if they made a 165, well then it becomes actually kind of hard to answer because where would you go to get rid of fighters at that point? Because 155, 165, 175, and I've said this before, if you manage the migration of talent from 155 and 170 over to 165 and then 175. 
it can be done where you have this, um, you know, really three strong divisions. It can be done. And so if you do that, then the question becomes a lot harder. So like, I don't, I don't need to see flyweight gone, but I don't necessarily think I would miss it if it was. I know that's like the, and everyone's like, oh, flyweight, oh my God, if it left, what's the UFC doing? And then I'll, I'll try to get calls on any flyweight topic on my show and that not a phone will ring. Not a phone will ring. <laughs> People love to talk about how much they love flyweight until it comes time to actually watch flyweight, in which case there's five hipsters who won't shut up about it and everybody else decides, yeah, I don't really care. Well, I'm one of those folks, and I don't mind saying it. I have nothing against it. I'll watch it if it's on. I don't gravitate to it. I don't genuflect at the altar of, oh, fucking flyweight. It's just the best MMA. It's good MMA, you know. I tend to think it probably wouldn't be as good if we had 155, 165, 175, but, you know, it's a personal preference. So, just, you know, it's hilarious that, like, oh, well, it's because they drained it. Let me explain something to you. Long before UFC drained it, nobody cared. Uh, maybe that's a failure of creative imagination and uh, fight promotion. Okay, I'm never willing to believe that. I, I don't know if that's the craziest theory I've ever heard, but on the other hand, again, if you had to get rid of one men's division, which one would it be? Easiest call on earth. Guess how many losses Shogun has from 2015 to now and then look up the answer. Jesus, I don't even know. I'll say... God, I don't know. I'll say three. Let's see. I mean, am I totally off on that? 2015 to now. He's got the one loss and the one draw. That's it. Yeah, but he had a bunch in 2014 and 2013. Yeah, he beat Little Nog, then Corey, then John, then lost to Anthony, then beat Tyson Pedro, and then had the draw against Paul Craig. That's crazy. That's crazy. He has one loss, but he also fought, you know, lower competition. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, if Leon Edwards was an excellent trash talker, would that make a big difference in his career? Well, it depends what you mean. He gets salty on social media with some of these folks. Like, I see it. I think the problem was twofold. I think, one, he wasn't doing enough interviews. I think that has probably been fixed, right? He does more of those now. I, I had a previous criticism of his management before. I would withdraw that now. And then, two, um, you know, in the interviews, he... I think that's less of an issue. Probably it matters. Probably it matters. Probably it matters a lot. But honestly, to me, the biggest issue is going to be, one, he lost out on an opportunity that Gilbert Burns was able to take advantage of. And that's not Gilbert's fault. That was just the way the, the pandemic cookie crumbled, right? He was, that was supposed to be, um, his fight was in March against Tyron. He was supposed to be the one that was going to step into that. You know, but the reality is with Leon, this is the interesting part about Leon. He is very talented. I just don't think folks realize how talented he is. Um, he might wear a belt in that weight class. I don't know because I don't know if he can beat Kamaru's wrestling enough to win, but he might be able to beat everybody else. And the problem with that is he's not going to beat you with like vicious ground and pound or like, you know, uh, heavy power on the feet or like amazing arm drags to the back. 
he's very good at mastering just enough of each of those uh, composite sports with a strategy that I've called halfway. Like when he puts when he goes to the back, he only puts one hook in and he likes to push against the fence. It gives him this option to bail if he needs to, but it's still dominant if he wants to go further. Uh, on top, he sits in half guard where he's passed a little bit and it's dominant. He can control the leg and he shuts down the guard for the most part, especially in MMA if he can get your back flat on the mat. But he doesn't really go a whole lot further. Uh, on the feet, you know, it's got he's very good striking, but he doesn't ever take too many risks. And he kind of just accrues points and then accrues rounds. And he's very good everywhere, but he doesn't really wow you in any one particular dimension. So he's very hard to beat, but that makes him a little bit hard to promote. Now, you might be like, well, Kamar Usman's hard to promote, but Kamar Usman has, um, you know, this sort of overwhelming force of nature. He was ready to go. Um, he trained, you know, I think it benefits you to be an American fighter for the most part, not in every way, but just like in terms of your visibility and accessibility, it just kind of matters, especially now. And he had knockouts. He had the knockout over Sergio Morais. You know, he had these really dominating, bloodying these guys up victories. You know, if I had to ask you what the most impressive Leon Edwards victory is, you could probably name one, but I think most even semi-hardcore fans couldn't. They're just, they don't stick out in your memory. You know, he beat Rafael Dos Anjos cleanly, Gunnar Nelson cleanly, Donald Cerrone cleanly. Like, those are not, uh, the, 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 the Gunnar Nelson one had its moments, but in general, not really. Like, he beat them. But they don't, like, there's never these moments that are like, that they just, uh, that are imprinted in your mind. Um, and so, yes, if he was a bigger trash talker, absolutely, like, if he, you know, I'm not saying he did what Colby did, but like, was able to generate media attention in the way that Colby is, like these, these massive interview requests all the time and create these heated rivalries. Doesn't really have a rival, doesn't have a super exciting fighting style, and he's very, 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 very good. He's very talented, super talented. Um, so the trash-talking thing, I couldn't deny it as a role that could contribute to his ascension, but I think it's probably a, a more complex problem. How do you think TJ and Sean O'Malley would go? Too many unknowns for me to really answer. All right, Luke is right to keep on about this judging thing. Uh-oh, someone trolling me here. First, we need to decide what objectively measurable things can make a difference to a judging outcome. For the sake of the idea, let's use CompuBox numbers. We ask judges to maintain their proficiency with a regular test. They should be able to judge a series of old fights from footage and hand their scores as normal. Each judge can then be compared to modern CompuBox numbers. I think you mean fight metric, but okay. And a success rate per judge worked out. To judge championship matches, use judges at 95, 90, 80, and so on. Um, I don't know if that's the best way to do it in terms of the percentages of the score and then how they measure against computational totals. But I will say I don't mind the idea there a little bit. Did you guys see that study that came out about baseball umpires? Now, even if you're one of my European or Asian Australian viewers, follow me here for just a second. You guys are probably at least vaguely familiar with the idea about what American baseball is. Of course, they play it in Japan and Korea and other places as well throughout South America. Uh, I should say Latin America. They did a study of Major League Baseball umpires. And what they found was, if I had to ask you, um, what the age range was, so like how old they actually were, you know, 30, 50, whatever, and how long they had been on the job, which ones would you say did the best when measuring against what they could see as a strike zone, 
being consistent over time, getting the calls right when they're sliding in at home plate, right? So, so did the plate, did the, did the runner have his foot touch the plate before the uh, uh, catcher, whoever it was behind home plate, was trying to tag them out, right? So were they able to, 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 to make a correct judgment in real time about who got to where first is essentially what you're asking there or at first base? Do you know who did the best? It wasn't the ones that had the longest tenure, right? You might think, oh, these guys have been, you know, umpires for 30 years in the Major League Baseball behind home plate. That must be this extraordinary amount of experience. They actually did the worst. It turned out that the very best ones were not the brand newest, like I've been on the job a year or two, not exactly. It was the ones who were in their like mid to late 30s and had about eight or nine years on the job. So they were pretty seasoned, right? They were pretty seasoned. But when they measured those folks against the ones who were the oldest cohort, either in age or in terms of how long they had been doing this, the younger ones in that case did better in virtually every way. Now, isn't that interesting? Because now it, it turns on its head the idea of what tenure means for expertise. Oh, this guy's been judging fights for 30 years. Well, maybe he fucking sucks at it now. Maybe he's not any good, you know? And MMA hasn't been around that long, but like maybe they were uh, a judge that went from boxing to MMA or something like that. You can get, I know everyone's like, oh, these old boxing judges suck. A lot of them do, but there's been some good ones too, right? It's not like universally true that they're all bad. But it, that really lets you know about like expertise and things. Like the window for where you get that the best is not necessarily correlated with tenure. So I don't know if this regular test that you have prescribed here is the best way to get to that uh, measurement. But if we had a regular test that we could reasonably rely upon as a, you know, a benchmark for occupational competency, I do think that is valuable. Because this idea that like I've just been here the longest, therefore I'm the best, that don't mean shit, it turns out. And that's in that, that, understand in baseball, you get a lot of reps where, you know, there's 100 to 200 pitches a night. You're just watching it. How many balls and strikes you're catching or, or, or rather judging. It's a lot, dude. That's a lot of reps you're getting. 200 reps a night. And you've been doing that for 20 years. Turns out that's when shit goes downhill. Amazing, right? So I, I tend to think that, that to me was like a wake up call, man. Like you ever, been, you ever had someone at your job? where they've kind of advanced, but they've not really advanced to the level that they should be at by virtue of something. So like they're way, they're ahead of you, but like if you were in the job that long, you would want to be like an executive and they're not quite, they're like, you know, manager, director, you know, and they're like, I've been doing this job for so long. And it's like, I don't give a fuck, dude. You're not good at it. Not gonna, not as good as me or, or you know, or my friend or whoever. I've seen it before. People just think, oh, I've been doing this for like, doing in this job. You know, please, God, put a bullet in the back of my head. If I ever get on here and I'm like, I've been doing this job for 20 years, which makes me automatically better than anyone who's been doing it for one. I'm telling you, I'm going to, if I can find a way to hang on in this career and do it for 20, 30 years, if I am ever so lucky, there's going to be somebody who comes around and does it for two years and they're going to be better than me. They're just going, to, I, I can feel it. I can feel it. I can feel how, like my grip on, you know, <laughs> um, all the things that may have made any thoughts I've ever had interesting slowly wane and go away. Um, so there's, who was the, um, 
who was the composer I read about? Was it Handel? There was some composer I had read about that for the first like 20 years of his life, or not his life, but his professional career, so I don't know exactly when that started, but let's say up up to around 40 or so, mid-40s, he had done the best composition of his career, like the incredible operas and, you know, concertos and the whole nine yards. Yeah, he was like an amazing composer. But then right around the 40s, he realized he just didn't have the same, both probably desire as well as like creative potential. So he flipped. And what he then began to do was no longer be a composer. But then what he began to do was teach other composers best practices from years on the job. And it actually ended up extending his career in a very long way. And he had really developed all these relationships with the you know, sort of young budding musicians um, in his in his life and in his orbit. And uh, the author of this, I think it was an article about like occupational um, competency past 50 for men. And what he had argued was, you know, that creative side of you kind of dies off around 50. It doesn't mean you have to stop. It means you have to leverage then what you have over them, which is then sharing all those gifts with the next generation because they're going to be have more vigorous than you, in touch with new ideas more so than you. And this is not universally true, but there tends to be a kind of uh, sort of like current that pulls in this direction. And so the, the ones that have the most lasting influence are the ones who are make a big splash and then pivot in a way to make use of what they have developed, but don't try to keep doing the same thing. Hopefully I can do that. That's my hope before everyone takes me out to pasture and decides old Yeller has, has done enough here. Let me do a couple more of these and then I'll go to the paid questions. Um, where do we leave off? Uh, okay, if when Till fights Perry, his walkout song has to be Taxman by the Beatles. I didn't realize this. I didn't know that uh, that website, the MikePerryIsABum.com, he didn't make that. Somebody made that. Not him. Or at least he says that. Who knows? Okay. Um, God, do I want to get to this one? In all seriousness, what is something you disagree about Ben Shapiro? Some of his arguments, such as culture, it's culture, not racism, seem to make sense. They make sense to his audience. And... Um, if you do any extended reading on virtually any topic on which he has opined, you will find him to be just woefully out of his depth. All right, so here's one. Uh, this was recent. I saw that he has been trying to argue, and I think there is a point to be made for what he has argued, which is that like this idea that everybody knew automatic best practices around how to, we're talking like uh, national level leaders worldwide. Right, so your Bolsonaro in in uh, 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 Brazil, and your Angela Merkel in Germany, and your Boris Johnson in the UK, and your Donald Trump in the United States, like this idea that they all had a very clear understanding of how to deal with this pandemic uh, and this particular virus, sort of being quite—that's why they call it the novel coronavirus because it's quite literally new—is is totally uh, oversold. I think that is a fair criticism, right? Like. Um, and even now, uh, it, maintaining any measure of success that any of them have had have been really difficult. You're seeing some beginning outbreaks in Barcelona. Tokyo had a bit of a flare-up recently. Um, where else have I seen they've had some problems where they thought it was all kind of solved? You, you could probably find a number of them. So that part is becoming quite true. And that there is one-size-fits-all is not true. People have been writing me like, oh, this country 
didn't use masks. Fair enough. They might have had a number of other policy interventions that may have made masks a minimal to a minimal priority, but these other things that they did were really effective. Fair enough. If we had all these other things going on, maybe we wouldn't need masks either. Like, okay, fair enough. Like that's a totally reasonable thing to say. Um, and that people were figuring it out as they went. That is true as well. And uh, the claim, and I think this is absolutely true, I cannot understand where this praise for the governor of New York comes from. I mean, this guy, his uh, Cuomo, his absolute failure as a governor got thousands of people killed. I mean, the idea that he would be some fucking hallmark of uh, effective governance is laughable. It is laughable. What a joke that is. I can't believe I keep seeing that shit um, from, you know, left-leaning uh, people that I know. Uh, you know, Gavin Newsom, I think, has made some good calls and some bad calls. And people have died in California, and they've got their own problems. But he has clearly been more on top of this than, than fucking Cuomo. And like people are like, oh, no one's getting sick in New York now. Right, because a bunch of them already did. You realize that that factors into to what extent uh, an additional spread can happen. But okay, we're talking about Ben Shapiro here. But then he can't just rely on this argument. He then goes on to say that, like, uh, not merely is that true, but that Trump has done just about as well as he possibly could, which doesn't necessarily give him high marks, but to say, you know, in the end, it's kind of a wash. I mean, this is a, like, absurd, totally absurd thing to argue. Listen, folks, if you would like me, I just did it to tell you that they, that the failures at governance around coronavirus are not exclusive to the United States and hardly exclusive to any one political party. I will make that argument with you. And there was data that just came out in my hometown. If you look at all the businesses that are having issues by virtue of fines or other contact tracing issues, it's all in the Georgetown, Northwest, super liberal, well-to-do part of the city. This idea that it's all Trump supporters out there not wearing masks and getting this issue uh, to flare up again is horseshit. I mean, there's so much blame to go around, man. It is not in any way any one individual uh, party or group or demo's fault, not even a little bit. And maybe some of these chickens from the protests are also coming home to roost as it relates to the coronavirus. But dude, what would, what on earth could you say is the effective policy <laughs> that he early put into place. There was the disbandment uh, uh, of the pandemic task force. There has been, uh, they were, and this was not merely his fault, right? Um, Spain didn't learn from Italy. We didn't learn from Spain. Uh, Texas didn't learn from New York. And now California didn't learn. Nobody's learning from each other, but okay, this idea that he was ahead of the curve. I mean, you got 140,000 people, and this is also dead, by the way, and this is not exclusive to him, but I have not seen any leadership uh, early on known solutions like masks, which I'm sorry, they are a known solution at this point. Not the only one, but they are one. Um, hyping up hydrochloroquine before it was really known what it does, and the jury is still somewhat out on that, it was sort of completely irresponsible. Stopping those task force meetings, irresponsible. And then on top of it, it's like, dude, the problem with what we have, do you understand when that pandemic uh, unemployment insurance hits, do you understand the fucking avalanche that is about to fall on this country where we've got 20 million Americans who have missed uh, or are late on rent or mortgage payments? Oh, buddy. 
it is about to get terrible. And then the solution that's going to come up uh, in Congress is from 600 a week to 200 a month. Ladies and gentlemen, there is about to be, unless something happens to fix this, there is about to be an absolute fucking bomb set off economically in this country. Make no mistake about it. Now, that is not exclusively in any way, shape, or form the White House's fault. Not even a little bit. And after this, I will get off of it and I will get back to MMA questions because I know that is predominantly what you come here for. But the complete lack of leadership on this about what to do is not exclusively his fault, but for sure he takes some blame here. There has been no leadership from the White House whatsoever about extending unemployment insurance in the ways that it needs to. 20 million Americans are reliant on this shit. They are reliant on it. And you take that away, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? It's going to be, it's going to be terrible. Terrible. Um, there's just no two ways about it. And so we can have a debate about what those things should be. But if you just look at all the countries that have mitigated uh, and managed the worst effects of any kind of lockdown or business closing or kids not being able to go back to school. And by the way, I'm, I'm warming up to that issue as well. I think there does appear to be some evidence that getting uh, kids below a certain age back to school can be done safely and frankly needs to be. But the utter lack of leadership on what can only be described as a burgeoning economic calamity. It does not fall squarely in his lap, but the lack of leadership is so manifestly his responsibility. And if it was anybody else with any other party, with any other name, you'd have to say the exact same thing. And I suspect that his loyalists would be howling at the fucking rooftops about it. And you would be within your rights to do it. The PPP uh, uh, plan was a half-assed plan from the get-go. Everything that has been done has been late or half-assed or middle of the road or not that great. The lack of a, uh, any kind of federal coherent plan, governors begging for national help. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. It is not to say that he has not done things right. It is not to say that these are all knowable problems. It is not to say that the mistakes that he has made other very competent world leaders have not also made because they have. But this idea that it's all a wash in the end or that he could have not, there was no way to do better or that this is a, frankly a great demonstration of ability is so fucking ridiculous. It is just, it's, it, it's pathetic. To, how could you argue that with a straight face? This has been a good job. You want to say he did a good job before that, we can debate it. Fine, totally different scenario. But this shit? Fellas, I mean, how, how can you take somebody seriously who says it? It's just so rank partisan. You have to be able to look at this and say, dude, it's a fucking mess. It's a fucking mess. And it's not a mess merely because of his fault. It's not. And it's, it, Cuomo is a fucking crook. A crook. He should be voted out of office immediately. I mean, what, what, a, what, a, what a completely pathetic creature he is in New York unbelievable what he is and it drives me nuts that people uh, on my side of the aisle are like do fucking great job i mean just it, what a total way to demolish any credibility you ever had just ridiculous but come the fuck on look around <laughs> no coherent national policy utterly this this 
bizarre, you know, state by state hodgepodge patchwork. We're all experiencing Corona in the weird, wrong, untimed ways stopping uh, uh, and undermining health experts who are doing daily briefings, taking them out so you can't spar with the press anymore. Surely some of you must see this. Surely, surely that we have this incredible death toll per capita and aggregately. It's like, this is a failure of governance. It's a fucking failure of governance. It just is. And the plenty of blame to go around. Plenty. Ha happy to share it with a... Uh, you know, Luke, say something bad about Nancy Pelosi. If she died today, it would be too late. Couldn't happen soon enough, right? Chuck Schumer, same thing. What a fucking zero he is. I'll do it. It's not that hard for me because it's we're talking about effective governance. Um, and it's just dramatic, dramatic failure. And to argue something like that is, <laughs> you know, up is down, left is right, like... And, and, you know, you guys know, I think Biden blows. I can't, well, I don't know if I can't stand him. Right. He's, ne he's never around. It's hard to hate him if he's never around. You think I think he's some kind of effective steward of government either? No, he is not. Uh, but the one reason he might end up winning, and I'm not voting for him, but it, I'm not voting for anybody because I live in D.C. I don't have to. But the one reason he might end up winning is because people are angry in the country. People want someone to soothe that anger. People want someone to acknowledge their suffering. And they want somebody who they feel like will say, you're not in this alone. And, and Biden has no credibility in these issues, but he can speak that message because the dude he's running against doesn't. Not often enough anyway. I don't know how you can't see that. Like, just be honest about Just be honest about it. Why do you think the poll numbers are what they are? Oh, the polls are all fake. Okay, well, the polls are all fake. I don't know what to tell you. You know, and then I could just get into the whole, I mean, forget any of this. All of Shapiro's pro-Israel nonsense. You know, it's not hard to find that this guy is completely vapid. Vapid to the core, man. He has this sort of, like, argumentative way of regurgitating rhetoric or, you know, dunking on undergrads who are just, you know, for the first time in their life, wrestling with ideas. And it sounds really like authoritative. But if you've done any amount of work, sort of like looking into these matters with any degree of fairness, there's very little he comes up with that I find novel or compelling, interesting, bright, uh, truthful, you know? Or it's halfway truthful and then like halfway bullshit, you know, like about this Trump thing. Like he's obviously got a point about everyone kind of has a, a bite of the shit sandwich on this one because it was so difficult to problem and no one's even really fixed it. But then when you go to the other, I mean, it's just like, my God, you know, my God. All right, let's get to your paid questions here. All right. Uh, let's do this. Dana always says fighters are guaranteed three fights a year. Does that mean guys like Ryan Hall are compensated when they don't get them? So not exactly. If they call you up and they say, hey, you want to fight? I'll make something up. Um, Ricardo Lamas and Ryan did not turn it down. In fact, they have a fight coming up, but let's say he did. Let's say he turned it down. Turns it down, and uh, what happens is they say, okay, well, we, we tried to give it to you. You just didn't want it. I think what ends up happening is if they don't actually find a way to give it to you. 
I think th then they have to end up paying. But if they offer it to you and you just turn it down, you don't get paid. Why is nobody talking about Gustafson possibly getting submitted by Verdum? Alex has not faced a high-caliber jiu-jitsu guy before. Phil Davis, not, uh, who is not Verdum, I understand, but he did get submitted with an anaconda by him and still has been submitted twice. Yes, uh, and then also Anthony uh, Smith. If Verdum is able to get on top or Verdum's guard, I think is one of the best guards heavyweight's ever seen, yes. Obviously, if that is the case, no, no doubt about it. But the, I think the presumption is that Verdum is kind of slow and... Gus has good footwork and a good jab, so he should be able to avoid it. But it's a fair concern, I think. <laughs> uh, did your father call you a one-eyed man in the presence of blind men upon notifying him that you were valedictorian? I was not valedictorian, although my best friend who uh, ended up uh, being my best man at my wedding was a valedictorian. And his dad told him the same thing. I did. Um, I was a national merit finalist on the PSAT which is, you know, like people who do well on it. Like, it's not like some crazy good score, but, you know, you do well enough on it and you get a national merit finalist. And uh, my brother was one as well. And we told him, uh, two different schools, because I had moved after my sophomore year. And I got one, and he got one. And then he rolled that out, like, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is kidding. He rolled it out like we made an honor roll. He was always like, yeah, but you're competing against idiots. I'd be like, well, okay. Uh, if you had one year to train the athlete of your choice to fight an unranked UFC heavyweight, who would you choose and what would you teach him? If you had to teach an unranked UFC heavyweight, one year, um, who would you choose? An unranked UFC heavyweight. Probably uh, Aaron Donald in the NFL. Somebody fucking mean. He's older now, but like in his prime, like an Indomitian Sioux. You guys ever seen that dude? Just known for st stomping people out. Like he was, he was he, tough. Um, who's like a really like good tight end, like an Erlacher in his prime. Um, well, there's a famous story about Erlacher wanting to fight Baz Rutten. You guys ever heard that? I guess they were at some like party for, I don't know, like Fox Sports or athletes or something. And uh, Erlocker had bumped into uh, Boz, and Boz was like, oh, my mistake. And uh, I'm probably telling this wrong, so try to get Boz to tell it. I think you could find it on YouTube. Anyway, Boz was like, oh, man, my, my bad. Like, whatever, you know, didn't mean anything. Not backing down, but not being a dick about it, you know. And then Erlocker was like, fuck you, da 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 Till eventually, uh, apparently Erlocker was like, hey, you want to take it outside? And Boz was like, okay. <laughs> and I guess some other people around, I mean, Boz has those tattoos on his palm, you know? Uh, I guess some other people had known who Boz was or, you know, thought better of it and wanted to intervene. But this was Boz before his knees were totally shot. Can you imagine that? Brian Urlacher getting fucked up by Boz Rutten. That would have been amazing. That would have been amazing. But we're talking unranked heavyweight training, you know, different scenario. Um, who's a really good athlete? that I love to watch. All the ones I like are all like gross looking, you know, uh, like Lashatella Hadzi. Um, oh, you could get Tyreek Hill. You could get uh, DK Metcalf. Do you guys see DK Metcalf? Let me see if I can get a picture of this fucking animal. This dude, man, you got to see his uh, stats. Uh, at the combine, just a fucking absolute savage, this dude. 
here. Let me pull this up. This DK Metcalf situation. Pull this up. Uh, see if y'all can see it here. Y'all see it? Yeah, look. I don't know if y'all can see this dude, but um, he's 6'3", 228 pounds, 1.6% body fat. That's got to be wrong. 1.6 is a lie. But 4.33, 40-yard dash, 27 benches of 225, and has a 40.5 vertical jump. That's flat-footed. Flat-footed, meaning like just from no movement, drop and go. DK Metcalf. Uh, okay. Luke, a few months ago, you recommended a particular invaluable source or compendium of info on COVID. Could you remind me of its name? Um, I can tell you the guy who put it together. I forgot the name of it. It's like the syllabus, I think it's called. But the guy who's in charge of it is the sort of like tech critic. And his name is Evgeny Morozov. Evgeny Morozov is the guy you're looking for. Uh, E-V Evgeny, G-E-N-Y Morozov, M-O-R-O-Z-O-V. Are there hobbyist-friendly striking gyms similar to hobbyist BJJ gyms where 40-year-old dad bods can become competent relatively safely? Yeah, sure. Virtually any gym is like that. If you go to like a real like old-school gym, it's going to be a little bit less likely. you got to go dig around a little bit. But do you remember, most of these people, they're not trying to turn away uh, like gym goers. The ones that will are the ones that aren't trying to make much, as much money or they make money off of their pro fighters' experiences. So I would say most Muay Thai gyms are happy to welcome you, man. They're, they got beginner courses. You know, they won't have you like go against some – dude, you won't even – like most places, you won't even spar your first year. You know, or a little bit, you know, a little bit, very light, light, super light, like nothing to ever be concerned about. Go try, go try. A lot of them have uh, like a week's free classes. You can go and take a look. You can sit around and you can see, you know, what else is doing. The good thing about striking right now is um, depending on where you live and what the stage is of reopening, it's a little bit easier to open the kickboxing one than it is for BJJ. Some of those, like, I know there's some schools in D.C., they're doing their classes outside or, you know, like spaced out on big mats where everyone's not together, you know. So it's a good time to try. It's a good time to go look. Just dig around, man. Trust me, these gyms right now are going to be desperate for people. So, yes, I would actually argue most of them. are. Dude, how many places – like if you go to, to Phil Nurse's place, like the Watt in New York City, I, I don't know this. I could be wrong about it. But I'm saying a place like that, you could at least be wondering – how much do they want somebody who's 40-year-old who's never struck, struck before, who's just trying to learn a little bit of self-defense, get in shape, you know, just enjoy myself, basically, you know. Dude, most of them are like that. Most of them are like that. What they'll do is they'll segment off, like, pro practice or a pro team or, you know, something like that. That's all you have to worry about. Uh... I'm just going to read this question. I don't like reading questions like this because I feel like it's self-serving, but he paid for it, so I'll... He writes, Luke, I think you consistently have original thoughts in MMA. Do you have a process where you develop these thoughts, or are they spontaneous? I just do a lot of reading and a lot of thinking about other things, and um, I saw somebody say the other day that like anybody you know who's an original thinker uh, will be wrong very badly, at least on one big issue at the time, that they are around, which maybe will change over time, but then also another issue uh, long after they're gone. 
So I don't know that I am. I could be quite the pedestrian one, but let's assume for just a moment that I have somewhat unique thoughts. I'm probably wrong about something now, quite quite desperately, that you will change your mind on later, and then I'll be wrong about something even in retrospect. So we'll see how this goes. Thoughts on Ortega versus Zombie. Zombie has better boxing, one-shot KO power, great takedown defense, and good BJJ. I think it's a bad matchup for Ortega. The BJJ part is kind of interesting. I wonder how Ortega might do there. I think he actually could be pretty pretty capable. But as long as it's on the feet, I think it, it will favor Zombie very much. Not only that one-punch KO power, but like, He's so accurate now. So accurate. Like, he hits the target a lot. I don't know if his overall career numbers speak to that because he never used to fight like that. That's only relatively new. But um, now he's so accurate. It's amazing to watch. Let's have a hypothetical. If Big Nog never existed, would Lil Nog be still considered a legend with his career as it was not being tied to his brother's career? I don't think as much. I know it's blasphemous to say. I don't think as much. Oh, can we get the podcast back? Yes, I will upload it. Uh, Luke, what did you think of Ezra Klein's Why We're Polarized? I personally really enjoyed it. I've not finished it yet, so I don't know. Um, do you think about doing non-fight content? I do. I do. Um, but I don't know what to do with it yet. People are like, oh, start a Patreon, get on Twitch. Like, okay, but I got a lot of jobs now, and I don't, I need to figure something out about that before I can do anything else. Rip Nazim Richardson, yes, him busting Amarga Chito and Mosley, giving him a vicious beating as punishment is my favorite moment in his training career. Yeah, Nazim Richardson, brilliant, brilliant boxing trainer. Shouts to everyone in Philly and the Philly boxing scene. Nazim Richardson, an absolute legend in that world. And uh, for folks who may not know, it was Richardson cornering Mosley who figured out that Margarito was trying to pat his gloves or allegedly trying to pat his gloves, whatever you want to call that. And uh, yeah, crazy, right? Do you know when Mike Russell plans on releasing his uh, Ali Abdulaziz podcast? I do not. Connor will likely tweet about it when it's released and it might go viral. It could. Certainly I'll check it out. I, I, will, I will listen to it. Up your volume, boomer. Y'all are always bitching about the fucking volume. Check, check, check. That's about as high as it's going to go. All right, same old fucking questions again. Uh, Robert Whitaker is one of those fighters I can't watch get hurt. I know that is a wussy thing to say. No, it's just a fan thing to say. There's nothing wussy about it. Best book you've read in the past three years, fiction or non-fiction? Just purchased monogamy and other lies. That's uh, good. Uh, best book I read in three years. That's a long time. Um, I don't know. I got this one. I've not read it. I know I keep buying books and I'm like halfway through. It's the most recommended one. Actually, speaking of Ezra Klein podcast, she was on, but I've been some people have been recommending it to me for a long time. The value of everything. Uh, Mariana Mazzucato is a uh, economist. Was she at the London School of Economics? Where is she at? I don't know where she teaches. I think she's out of England. But um, this is supposed to be like transformative work. I've not read it yet. But uh, what is the best one I read in the last three? Let me pull up my. Let me pull up my uh, Amazon. Kindle because I don't nothing really stands out but I've read a 
bunch, so like I can't quite remember. Let's see. Um, oh, you know what? I can do it on my phone. Let's do it there. I know that I'm stalling here. I apologize. This is terrible. What you call it? Uh, okay. So, I would say uh, the best one I've read in the last three years would be, hmm, oh, I know, um, Probably the master switch by Tim Wu, essentially on um, the birth of innovative innovation and then the industries that form around it and then how they become closed. That was like a really just eye-opening read. Uh, okay, let's see what else we got here. What UFC fighter could you see being on the undercard of the Mike Tyson fight? I, I don't know if they're going to let any UFC fighter do that. Could you speak briefly on Michael Brooks? Yeah, I didn't, um, I wasn't the biggest fan of his radio show, but I certainly uh, appreciate, like we basically do the sim similar kinds of things. I just do it in sports and he did it in politics. He was a very left-leaning guy, but, um, you know, it's part of, um, he was part of the uh, the Majority Report with Sam Cedar, And, um, you know, <laughs> I do appreciate all the stuff he did to like assassinate total frauds like uh, Dave Rubin, but... Uh, he died tragically recently. I don't know what the cause was. Uh, really terrible, but, um, you know, I think other people beyond me could give you better recitations of the the value of his work and, and why he was missed. But, you know, suffice to say, young guy, I think 37, and was really trying to do sort of humanist work um, in the space and was on his way and then tragically cut short. It's terrible. Someone says, uh, don't go on Rogan with Skype. His P-Shift episode sucked. I didn't see it, but I take People, here's the problem. I'll bring this up, and then I get, I get like 10 emails. Five would be like, dude, don't worry about Skype. And then the other five being like, dude, don't do it on Skype. It's like... <laughs> um, someone says, uh, this song is a good song for Pantera. What's your favorite Pantera song? Probably, it used to be I'm Broken until they, they sold the song to Checkers. So I'll say, like, some of my favorites are Fucking Hostile, um, Great Southern Trend Kill, We'll Grind That Axe for a Long Time, um, Walk, Domination. I mean, these are all some of my favorites, you know. Uh, Drag the Waters, uh, Simplified Devil, appreciate you, buddy. Do you see Michael Chiesa as a threat for the title at 170? Uh, he's on his way. He's got a lot of work in front of him, but he's on his way. Ever going to write a book? Not anytime soon. Any reading recs for combat sports? I think I've given some. The judo book I always recommend is Falling Hard. Um, you know, I'm not as good about that as I should be. Let me, uh, let me put together a list, because I have some that I've read, but... Uh, people keep asking, and I consistently fail at that question to give new or original answers. Best Australian fighters that aren't Volk or Rob. Um, best Australian fighters that aren't Volk or Rob. Jake Matthews is okay. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting people. Um, some of those 
the heavyweights are good, right? I mean, you got to understand something about like Australia. When I first started watching MMA, the only Australian in it was Elvis Sinisek, the king of rock and rumble. Then later on, like Anthony Parash. And then they had like their first high-level black belt, which was Kit Dale. Look at them now, dude. I mean, they're on fire. It's amazing to watch the development in Australia and New Zealand. Incredible, incredible growth. Do you think the UFC will have an epiphany about how important their attendance really is to sports functioning with a year of sports with no fans? No, I don't. I think it'll be quite the opposite. They'll learn to live without them. Uh, do you think Ali's guys might turn into heels in their and Ali's attempts to get attention? Burns and Usman's antics seem phony to an unlikable degree. I don't think they're trying to be villains. I just think they're trying to market themselves. And maybe it's effective, maybe it's not, but I don't I don't think so. Ollie's his own man in that regard. I don't think that they I don't think that they necessarily follow him in that way. Granted, I don't follow um any of them on Twitter, but I don't but when I, whenever I read their tweets come across my timeline, they seem a little bit different. If Gastelum lost some excess body fat and cut to 170 healthily, think he could beat Usman. I don't know, but I do think, like, this is, this is what I've said. If they made 165, which means they would turn 170 and 175, you would not want to do that on Gastelum's behalf. That's not a reason to create the divisions in that way. But he would clearly be a beneficiary of that move, number one. Number two, it's like, I don't know if he can make 170 in a healthy way. And so what is his choice? Be undersized and, like, good but outmatched at 185 or just murder yourself to get down to a weight class that is not good for you. I mean, that seems like a bad way to go about business for somebody who is otherwise quite talented. Now, again, just because of his individual woes, you don't need to restructure your business. But I don't know. I, I just really feel like we're missing an opportunity there to get that right. Where we really care about weight cutting, part of the solution is monitoring people up front and then calling it when they're cutting so they don't get to extreme lengths. But like, say it out loud, part of battling extreme weight cutting is creating more weight classes. Now that's not necessarily good for business, but it is part of the solution. It's all, it's not one thing or the other thing, it's many things. And new weight classes is part of that. All right, let's see here. Uh, hello, Luke. I, I This is a funny one. I get this all the time. Hi, Luke. Sorry I couldn't give more. Well, don't worry. You can give a, a, a buck and it's fine. Or you don't. Don't have to give anything. I just appreciate it no matter what. Um, I spent too much on pot earlier this week so that I can stay sane during this existential nightmare. I'm not mad at that. Do your thing, player. Question. Is your enthusiasm for city kickboxing folks overhyping them to your viewership? They seem to think so. I, I'm trying to be like... So, for example... I brought up the fact that uh, I had talked to Eugene Behrman before my last um, uh, dissected and that I hadn't had a chance to talk to uh, Max's folks. Understand, people are like, oh, I wouldn't want to talk to you either if you talked to Eugene. Dude, like, I'm on great terms with Max's people. I like them. They like me. We're good. Have you seen Max and his people talk to a bunch of other people? Because I haven't. They're just not talking in general. It's not some like, you know... The Ali thing is a boycott, but they're not boycotting. They just don't want to talk. It's fine. Like, you can't make them. They don't owe you shit, you know? Um, dude, I, I, I'm i with Eugene on this one. I think Max's team at Gracie Technics, like the Ivan Floreses of the world, these are some of the smartest people in the sport, and it doesn't seem like people realize that. Not as much as they should. Like, I have a 
I have been trying to speak to about Max's game since I was doing the Monday Morning Analyst on uh, MMA fighting. Like, holy fuck, I've been doing it for a long time, man. I'm clearly like enamored with their game, but like apparently, if I say anything nice about any of the city kickboxing folks at this point, you know. Uh, it's just overkill. All right, well, I'm not trying to. I swear to God, I'm not trying to. There's plenty of brilliance going around. But I just... The, the only thing I think folks don't realize is, one, um, I try to give attention to other smart fighters and teams, and it seems to not... Like, I can't do it by myself, but it, that doesn't seem to get noticed as much as I think it should. I mean, ultimately, what is Dissected about? It's about... It's about, like, praising, for the most part, not always, but it's, it's, it's in general for praising good effort. And good results. But beyond that, um, I don't, like, here's the thing about it. It's so, it's, it's so funny. I actually think that Paulo Costa is far and away the toughest fight for Adesanya. Wouldn't be surprised for two seconds if he wins, quite candidly, to be honest with you. Especially if they do it in the apex, in that tiny cage. Mm-mm. Like when the city kickboxing guys are like, oh, we're smarter than him. I think they're right. They probably are. They probably have a much more technical style and certainly insights into the game. I'm the first one to be like, I this whole thing like, oh, Paulo has no chance. I mean, would it surprise you if Adesanya won? Of course not. But what I'm saying is something about that fight is like a little off to me. I think Costa is an absolute live dog in every way possible. But it is also true that I don't think folks understand. I've been trying to tell them there is a level of understanding of the game and sophistication that those guys at City Kickboxing have that the rest of the sport is only barely acknowledging. They didn't even get mentioned, and again, it's MMA awards, and you know I don't know what you want to say about those things. I mean, they do their best, obviously, but you, know, you can only nominate so many people. Okay, I'm not here to bash it, but I'm here to say like it was a little weird that they didn't even get nominated for Team of the Year or Gym of the Year, whatever it was. It's like, really? <laughs> they're in this tiny nation it, tucked away, and they're beating the fuck out of a lot of people. And they're doing it by realizing that if you can bring your jiu-jitsu up to modern best practices, not like you have it better than everybody, but like on par-ish with what the common standard of excellency is. Same with the wrestling, and that's coming along too. They got the Hickman brothers down there doing all their things. They are so much more advanced in striking than we are. And this is the best part about being an MMA fan today. Striking is getting so good. I said, I forget, I said this on my radio show. I follow a lot of like boxing analysts and coaches on social media. And yes, there's been a lull in boxing. So they've been talking about MMA more. But even before that, you're just seeing them break down more MMA striking, more MMA striking. That was not the case 10 years ago. They were not, they wouldn't even give uh, MMA the time of day. And now they realize like some of these guys are pretty good. You know, are they as good as us at boxing? No, but they're pretty good. They're pretty good. Like, you know, when a guy comes over from MMA who does only jujitsu and MMA and then goes and competes at Minamoris, he does okay. You know, he's pretty good. He doesn't win, but he's pretty good. It's kind of like that. Like they're noticing it's, and it's different and it's like interesting and they're, MMA striking is getting so exciting. And it's not just the city kickboxing guys who are at the vanguard of that. I think Dwayne Ludwig is a complete genius too. I think he's amazing. I can go on and on about many, many people. Uh, and again, Ivan Flores and those guys at Gracie Technics, holy fucking shit, they are smart. But it is also true that the guys at City Kickboxing, I just don't think people have grasped the totality of what they're trying to do and how well they do it. And again, they do it in very different levels and different ways and not all the same. Um, but 
it's an exciting time to be an MMA fan. And if you pay attention about who's doing the biggest developments in the most exciting areas, it's just impossible to not have more conversations about city kickboxing than some of their other bigger gyms. That's it. Uh, what are your favorite DC comics movies? Have you been able to watch Joker? I did see Joker. Do you think DC will ever reach the level of Marvel Cinematic Universe? Here's what I've noticed about DC movies, and I'm not in any way an expert on this shit. By the way, I watched, uh, I saw Watchmen, which was just an amazing show. Can't say enough good things about it. I'm watching Doom Patrol. Pretty good. It's pretty good. Is it just me, or are the animated DC movies fantastic? <laughs> Like all your animated Batman movies, like they're pretty good, you know? Uh, and then some of your animated Superman movies. And then the ones they make, like, you know, everyone's like released the Snyder Cut. Is that really going to save it? You know, is that really going to save it? Still kind of some shit, you know? I don't know what the problem is. Y'all might know much better than me. I don't, I don't have enough of a say. I thought Joker was good, not great. I didn't think it was terrible. Um, I thought Joaquin Phoenix was amazing. I thought like how they had kind of repositioned him as like the sort of sad sack victim and then Bruce Wayne's dad as sort of this cruel uh, oligarch was an interesting twist. I kind of like that. Um, I thought his descent into madness was not, was understandable um, and well told for the most part. Um yeah, and I sort of tying it into these modern themes of concerns over economic inequality, pretty good. Yeah, I, 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 when that fight was when the fight when that movie was over, I was like, I mean, I'm not saying it's the best or the worst movie I've ever seen either way, but what is everybody mad about? <laughs> that was my first question. My wife and I watched it because I was like, Are you? How do you feel about this? Because we were like, Oh man, we missed it in theaters. We watched it when it came home, and we we're like, What's all the controversy going to be about? You know? And then we watched it, and we're like. Are you mad? Because I'm not mad. I it was fine. It was good. It was great. Joaquin Phoenix, amazing. And she was like, "Yeah, same." I'm like, "So what was the big deal?" I don't know. I I I have to go back and read what some of the people had these like. Oh my god, this was like, you know, the the the, the glorification of not mental illness per se, but aggrieved white male politics. And I'm like, eh. I didn't quite get that from that. Um, it seemed a little bit unique to me. And also, it seemed like there are some probably some broader questions we could probably be asking about um, treatment of mental illness. And, uh, you know, and it's also, it's a comic book movie. Like, how far do you want to go down the rabbit hole of seriousness? On some level, you have to. On a lot of levels, you probably don't, right? So that's the other part. It's like they're sort of playing with these ideas but never fully adopting them. I didn't understand the bad. After that, I was like, the, what the fuck are y'all back? Like, okay, whatever. People just got a bit there. People just need something to complain about, I, I guess. I don't know. All right. Uh, with that in mind, let's do this. Give me a subscription. Thumbs up. I know a bunch of y'all are going to be bitter about the politics thing, but just, just look, folks. Can I just make one appeal to you? I'm going to say some shit you like. I'm going to say some shit you hate. But hopefully, the reason why you come around here is, one, I am not afraid to piss off my own audience. I don't intend to. I am not trolling. That is not what this is about. Um, and it is okay in this world if you get exposed to ideas that you would otherwise not hear. 
or viewpoints that you would otherwise not hear. I follow lots of people who say things that I don't like, and I toy with the idea of like not reading and unfollowing, but then I decide that would be bad. That would be bad. Which isn't to say you have to listen to me, but find somebody else to listen to if you don't want to listen to me, or you know, find somebody else who you disagree with. It will be okay. It will be okay. Okay? It's not like I know a lot of people are like, I don't like it when okay. Well, if it's one thing, if you just want a purely sports chat, that's fine. But I don't write the questions. I don't make anybody talk about any of this stuff. They bring it up. And so, you know, I guess I could skip them all, but I, I don't want to do that. So, um, just chill. Relax. It's, it's okay. All right. Someone got one more in here. Luke, love the show. Uh, do you have a paranormal story to share? No. But dude, I got to tell you what, man. New York Times is not hiding from the fact that the Pentagon is now like openly acknowledging there's UFOs. Didn't have that on my 2020 bingo card. I can admit that. All right, y'all. I appreciate you watching. If I pissed you off, please come back next time. I, I don't mean it to. I'll say something you like next time. And I appreciate everybody who has the willingness to, uh, hey, sometimes I agree, sometimes I don't, but it's okay. You're the best. And you make me sharper. And hopefully in the end, I can do that for you as well. We do it for each other. Yeah? Okay. Have a good weekend. Enjoy the fights tonight and tomorrow. I might do a post-fight show. We'll see how it goes. Until then, stay frosty.